Welcome to Conductor's Brew. Matt, good to see you, my friend. Once again, we are doing the long-distance thing. Um, and all of our all of our guests today are long distance. This is the uh, this is the socially distanced podcast. Um, but uh, Matt, you're back home in Salt Lake. I am I am at an undisclosed location in warmer climates. Uh, how, how's things back home, man? Hello, Larry. It's good to see you again. And uh, uh, before we introduce our guests, I just want to say it is a little strange to see you in your undisclosed location in shorts and a t-shirt because it is cold in Salt Lake City. It's been inversiony and smoggy and hazy and kind of gross. We had a few snow flurries today and we're hoping to clear out the inversion later and supposed to get some accumulating snow tomorrow. So I'm really excited for that because I, I enjoy the snow. I think my favorite part about it is shoveling it. I don't know why. I've always just wow really into shoveling snow. Yeah. Wow. If you so let if you down, let that out, people will my, my responsibility. I get very territorial about shoveling the snow. So that that that's your job. Was that your job growing up as a kid in Connecticut? Were you the snow it shoveler? Was. Yes, it was. I, I refined my skills over many, many a winter season in Connecticut and uh uh, at one point, it was my dream in life to become a snowplow driver. So I, I practiced with the snow shovel, you know, doing like the sideways plow yeah, yeah. On, the, on, the, on the driveway. And yeah, so sometimes it would take me hours to, to shovel the driveway. But that wasn't the point. The point was to just move it around and have fun. I, could, I can clear the driveway in, you know, faster than anybody. I, I've never used a snowblower in my life. I'm not sure I ever will. There you go. Well, you know, the, the the simple ways, the pure ways are the best. You know, and that's the thing is like when uh, when I mowed the grass, you'd get this sense of accomplishment because you would see the area transformed. You know, that's I mean, that's a wonderful thing. So but anyway, listen, East Coast snow is super wet. Is it do you prefer East Coast snow shoveling or our, our, our fine powdered snow here in Utah? Oh, the Salt Lake City snow is way better. It's way easier. It's yeah. basically you could basically use a use a leaf blower on it, and it'll it'll work. <laughs> That's true because yeah, like the, I don't I don't miss the heavy wet snow. Yeah, because I have this thing like I, I sweep I sweep the snow off my car. Like I don't have to shovel anything. So yeah, and it's you know just you know light, it's salad days in in Utah. Life is good. Even the snow is is relaxed and easy going. So good. Well, you know, I'm I hope you're enjoying the snow. I am in as you mentioned a warmer climate. I'm here in Florida. I am uh, quarantining at my in-laws house. We decided to to make a, a socially distanced trek across the country in car, in a car, um not having any contact with anybody, you know, just staying away and uh, but we decided even when we got here that we wanted to to quarantine for two weeks like they recommend so we are staying in a guest bedroom that has fortunately a door near the outside so we're able to come outside and that is what i've done i've come outside uh, by the uh, by the back pool and our uh, so we can do our podcast so this this is me this is me quarantine style podcast version what's the temperature the air temperature just out of curiosity 75 oh i hate you <laughs> It's yeah, it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. I'm in the shade, and it's you know it's it's Florida, so it's a humid place, but it's low humidity right now. So this this feels like a Salt Lake Spring. This is like a Salt Lake Spring right now. I'm very jealous. It's okay. It's okay. I went through your old stomping grounds on the way down. I went through Valdosta. Oh, did you wave at it? I did. I seconds of highway time that it takes to go through. What was that about the highway time? It takes about five seconds of highway time to go through Valdosta. Did you did you have time to wave? I did. I I, no, I noticed that I was there, and then I was in Florida, and that was basically that, it. That's about it. Yeah, yeah. You, you hit Valdosta. You hit the uh, what is it? The uh, the way station at the border, and then and then you're through, and then uh, 
the road gets even more flat and narrow and straight. Yeah, it was like I was back in Nebraska all of a sudden. So, but yeah, it's it was amazing how, that, how flat that part of Florida is. It's just I ten just goes forever without turning. It seems. Yeah, well, I was on I was on seventy five or whatever going south, uh, and it, yeah, it's just like a straight shot, you know. Oh, are you on the west side of Florida or the east side? I'm on the I'm on the west side. My my oh, in laws are near. They're near Ocala. What? So you never had to take I-10. You just went straight down 75? Correct. Yeah, 75 all the way to Ocala, and then you jog over a little bit, and, and then you're here. So, You know, that highway, I-75, is, is the, uh, the, the, the drug smuggling interstate of the United States, of the eastern part of the United States. It goes all the way from, uh, from the Keys all the way up to Canada. Interesting story. I actually got pulled over for doing something that made the cop think I was smuggling drugs, but this was in Nebraska. So, quick story. All right, and then we'll actually do music. So, I was we were we were heading um we were heading east on um on I-80 through Nebraska somewhere near Kearney or something like that. And um we see a dog crate in the side of the road. So, we decide oh we you know we want to go check make sure it's not like an actual animal in there so we turn around at this exit and head back well apparently right before that exit there's a sign they have posted that said police checkpoint ahead drug sniffing dog and so the cops sit there looking for people to turn around at that exit after they see the drug sniffing dog sign so i got pulled over for not using my left turn signal to merge back onto the highway which i'm pretty sure i think i did but anyway i'm like really and he's like yeah well you know, I'm just going to write you a warning. Gee, thanks. And but he explained what the real reason was that we got pulled over. So be careful at interstates on, on like entrapment. To me. Well, I you know okay, but I didn't. I don't know. No, no. Maybe I, I didn't use my turn signal. I don't. They were, know. They were just they were waiting for people to do that, and 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 you probably used your blinker, and he's just saying you weren't. I mean, it's it's they probably get that all the time. I did get up to 78 and a 75, so there you go. Oh, three miles an hour. He did say, he said, oh, you went a little bit over 75. I'm like, yes, I did. I went seven, I went 78. You know, I was, and the thing is, I told him, I said, I saw a dog crate. He said, oh yeah, that dog crate doesn't have anything in it. It's just empty. So it's like, I had a, I had a story that probably wouldn't be made up. So he, he, I guess. So wait, did they just leave the dog crate there as like a, like a, (laughs) to trap animal lovers and. To, to trick animal lovers into turning around, you never know. Maybe, maybe that's a real high level, high level thinking in the police highway patrol in Nebraska. I don't, I don't know. All right. Well, note to self: never, never pull off the road right before. Uh, uh, yeah. A, a dog sniffing checkpoint. Actually, it reminds me of a um, uh, time I was in Connecticut driving down to New Haven on Interstate 91, and uh, it was during the holidays, and so they're always doing speed traps. And there was a there was a, a police car pulled off the road, and uh, like right where the median is, where the exit is, yeah. like on the right side of the road. And he, he had his door open, and I'm like, "What is he doing?" And he was sitting in his car door with the radar gun pointed right at me. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm looking at my review, and I'm like, "I'm not going over the speed limit, I don't think, but maybe I was. I might have been." <laughs> so I'm looking at my rear view, and he as soon as he follows me with his radar gun, and 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 gets into his car immediately i'm thinking oh he's getting on the radio he's gonna call down to his pal so so i came over like three lanes of traffic and and took an exit onto it onto a slightly different highway <laughs> got off the first exit came back around to the, to the other entrance ramp and got back on the highway i mean i don't know if he was coming for me but uh i, I managed to avoid any any detection whatsoever you gave him the slip man there you go you you you, ha- you have a maybe you maybe got like moonshine running in your in your ancestry somewhere in your dna so 
Yeah, or winemaking or something. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. You know. Hey, speaking of beverages, what do you drink in there? Oh yeah, well, so we like we talked about uh, before we started. This this is something that you would, I I, fig- I figured you would. Uh, <laughs> You wouldn't serve me this, but this is actually pretty good. This is a this is a, a a cup of of hot water that I took a Folgers coffee tea bag, not instant now. So it's like regular. It's like a little mini brew inside a tea bag. So it's this. Wait, this, wait, 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 wait. This, I, I'm going to show you this. This is not going to play on the radio. Coffee? Yeah, look a look at that. See, oh my so it's coffee in a tea bag. I see. I figured you were going to get get on my case, but Matt, you this is what happens no, when no, I travel. I, I don't have you around to help me out. You know, I take it back, Larry. That that looks sort of like a, like a like a, a a portable French press in a bag kind of a thing. That makes me feel much classier. I I, I like that way of thinking. Well, I don't know if I'd go that far. I wouldn't call it classy, but. Mm-hmm. Well, hey, it's it's, it's no turkey flavored siphon, that's for sure. But go ahead. No, I don't. Donuts make some pretty decent non-coffee. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is we got this for the road because we didn't go in anywhere. When we when we traveled, we, we, we didn't come in contact with a, with another human being on the road. I You know, anyway, so we had to brew our own coffee and stuff. So anyway, it's crazy. Oh, yeah. It's smart. You can just pull off the road, get some hot water somewhere or uh, or whatever. You know, use your, your radiator to heat, heat a tea kettle or something. And, uh, <laughs> uh, you, you know, use the exhaust from the car to heat up your coffee water and you're good to go. I just used the microwave in the hotel. I didn't I didn't use the radiator, so I'm I'm <laughs> the not microwave as microwave water is the worst. It tastes weird. What? It doesn't be... Okay, we we can't. We're almost 10 minutes into this. We can... how how, how yeah, does microwave coffee taste weird? We'll have to say it for another show. <laughs> the microwave water tastes different. I swear by it. All right. But that's enough out of, out of me for now. We're going to try we're going to we're going to try we're going to try that next when I get back in town. We're going to make two cups of coffee exactly the same way, one with microwave coffee, one with heated on the stove, and we're going to test it. We'll have a whole episode about it. Okay. I'll take you up on that. All right. I, I, I figured you would. Okay. Well, let's get started with the prop with the show proper. We got the crew standing by, and, and they um, um, they have uh, n- not left us yet, which is good. I guess, you know, it shows some commitment. They're, they're yes, still with the show. Patiently waiting for us. Yes, and we we are at our, our our final episode of our celebrating Beethoven series, um, and this is going to air, I think, the day after his, you know, his his um, I think he was baptized on December seventeenth, and it's not at least as far as I know, not know. Maybe you guys can clear up clear us up for me the exact day that he was born, but he was born sometime mid December, in seventeen seventy. So this is the, the the birthday episode for Beethoven. So Brandon, Matt McKeever, welcome back to the show. Good to see y'all. Very glad to be here. Thanks. Nice to be back. Absolutely. And, and McKeever's back from travels travels to even better climates than I was in. So it's good to see you guys. Um, okay. Thank you. Thank you. So, Manella, why don't you, uh, why don't you lead us in here? So, Be- Beethoven's yes. Ninth. Um, what, what, do you, what are you thinking? Uh, like, how do, we, how, do, how do we set this piece up? I mean, this piece is so much different. I mean, it was so revolutionary compared to the other things that we have uh, from Beethoven or anybody else, and it, and, it, and it looms so large in the in the symphonists that come after it. So how, how you know how do we you know how do we how do we tee this up? I'm going to make you do that, yes. Manella. Okay, no, that's a really 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 good question. I I don't have a good answer for you other than to say I wish he had lived longer to write a tenth symphony. You know, he started a tenth symphony, but I yeah. don't know what ten and eleven and twelve would have sounded like. If if you know we if we follow his his output from first symphony through the ninth symphony, there's a really amazing and clear progression in, in just how he treats the orchestra and, and how he treats um, 
musical materials, uh, not just um, from uh, you know from the classical era, but also how he helps expand certain sounds going into and really turns the corner into the Romantic era. So this this symphony is is like a totally new thing all unto itself. Of course, it is famous for having the Ode to Joy theme, which is sung, and that was highly unusual and, and would have been quite revolutionary at the time. Uh, I feel like I use that word a lot for uh, uh, for Beethoven. We you know we talk about the Eroka Symphony being revolutionary. We talked about the Fifth Symphony being revolutionary, and the Sixth Symphony kind of being revolutionary. The Seventh, in a way, the Eighth was sort of uh, which we covered last time was is sort of Harking, harkening back to the classical era in a way, but then we get to this ninth symphony, and and it just it just blows everything else out of the water. Yeah. Incidentally, this is not my favorite Beethoven symphony. Mine, mine neither. We, we could take a vote on that app. That now that we've finished, we can all take a vote on that. I I absolutely love the first movement of the ninth as well as the third movement. Um, he switches the the second and the third movements. Um, is that right? In this symphony, that's right, right? This, he, he turns the second movement into a, into a scherzo, right? And the third movement's the slow movement. Mm-hmm. Traditionally, it's the other way around, right? Yeah. Um, I don't mind the second movement. I think it gets a little long-winded. I get a little tired of it. But um, the third movement is just, it's just one of the most sublime things ever written, I think. Yeah. And then, of course, the last movement gets into um, a bit more of a, an issue with, with the vocal parts because they're not really idiomatic. I've, I've sung this <laughs> and it is difficult to sing uh, for trained singers as well. It's high, it's got weird jumps, uh, it's, it's long, it's, it's a strain. And uh, if, if you're not careful, it can really sound that way. Um, so part of, part of my issue, I think, is, is just the recordings I've heard. I don't have a real favorite recording, although I will say, that I was listening to the radio it's only a few weeks ago, and there was this wonderful recording uh, uh, of the ninth in progress that I joined uh, listening to. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, this is the fourth movement, of course. It just, it just sounds glorious, really, really tasteful playing. And then the choir started singing. And I had never heard such a, such a wonderful sounding choir in the symphony. And and we get to the end of it, and I realized, uh, oh, that's, uh, you know, the announcer comes on the radio, and, and he says, oh, that's uh, the Utah Symphony with Thierry Fisher. And, of course, the chorus is uh, prepared by uh, Barlow Bradford. Yes. And, he, yes, and so he, he's got this unique sound in this this Utah Symphony chorus. It's just this wonderful, uh, I wouldn't call it a light sound. It's just a really clear, resonant, pure sound. It's without a lot of the heavy kind of uh, heaviness that, that we kind of associate with this with this piece. And I found it very, very aesthetic and very appealing. Um, and so I'm kind of, uh, I kind of changed my mind in a lot of ways about some things. But um, but let's get into this then, if, if, we, if we would like to get into the first movement. Well, I, before before we do that, I wanted to bring in uh, McKeever and Brandon really quick and ask, 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 ask you guys a quick question about this piece before we kind of get into the nitty gritty of it. So like, when when we we talk about Beethoven's, um, <clears throat> you know, him being revolutionary, did is there anything in like in Beethoven's work that you see that kind of um, that that stands out more than this, or or, or um, I don't I don't know like what, how, how do you place this work, or how do you think about this work, in in the terms of his his overall output, like you know in, in terms of its importance, and whoever whoever unmutes first can answer. <laughs> 
In terms of its importance, huh? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's got to be at the top. You've mm-hmm. got some... I mean, he's obviously composed in a variety of genres um, over his composing lifetime. Um, you know, you've got the, the, the huge uh, string quartets at the end of his life that are just amazing. Um, you've got the, the five piano concertos, which are ridiculously beautiful and, and complicated in their own ways. But, you know, this this particular piece... You know, of course, the idea for the, the big choral finale that's been kicking around in his head for a long time, um, and he sort of tested it out a little bit here and there. Um, but I, I think this is probably one of the, the turning points of why he kind of straddles this uh, classic period into the romantic period, um, because I think more than anything, this sort of encapsulates what he's been struggling to save for a lot of his lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um his frustrations through his hearing loss, through the issues with his family life and dealing with his nephew and all the chaos that's been going on in Vienna at the time. You know, there's there's so much negativity and, and issues and problems that are happening outside of his musical world that I think this, this piece sort of um, is a way to kind of encapsulate how he might actually feel despite what's been going on around his life. Yeah. And, and let me ask it this way. And McKeever, if I can come to you real quick on this one, if he had lived longer, if, and if he'd written more symphonies and let's, let's say he did something like he, like he kind of went back to something like the eighth symphony and scale and scaled things down. Do you think we would think about this symphony differently because as, as maybe like an anomaly or because it was sort of the last thing I think what I kind of imagine is, is the romantics say well this is this is where Beethoven ended and he would have gone even more even more epic but if he hadn't if it was just sort of like he wanted to write this large symphony and, and experiment with choir but then he kind of went back to more traditional things all of the eighth symphony do you think it would have echoed so loudly through history I really do think it would have um, because for as much as an anomaly of an anomaly as it is and the prestige that it does carry simply because of its uh, revelations and all of the new things that he now brings um, it does it does you know so happen to be his last major work um, I think that regardless it would just it, it would stand the test of time and be this monumental, you know, powerful, progressive work that that he that he brought to the table to once again, for you know, what the third or fourth time throughout his symphonic career, redefined what the symphony was. Yeah, um, I mean, you know, if if we think about the monumental leap of form and structure and weight that carries from the first two symphonies to the Eroica and then moving past that to the new weight of the fifth to you know something uh, I'm trying not to use the word programmatic for as much as it is a programmatic work it's it's only I mean it's programmatic with titles um, you know the sixth symphony uh, but then 
you know, one thing that I, I, I wasn't on the podcast for, for the seventh symphony and to, to say that, that he, you know, changed everything is one thing, but not only did he change things, he also perfected them. And I think that the most picturesque, uh, portrait of what a perfect symphony would be, would, would literally be the seventh symphony because it, it takes, you know, the traditional forms, but it also incorporates the Beethoven, um, uh, developments, uh, just all of these, all of these things that he had, that he had done to, to innovate what the symphony could be, um, to, you know, here is, here is what it had been, here is what it is now. And then, you know, with the eighth symphony, you do have a little bit of a taken, I don't want to say taken back because that, that has its own, uh, you know, fundamental place in the repertoire as well. But then Mm -hmm. it's like, wow, I'm now just going to change everything once again. It feels like whiplash, you know, it's like, wham, between eight and nine, you know? I think I think you know that was just kind of his his way of of uh, it's like everything that he did he he had to he had to innovate he had to be the innovator. Um, if you if you look at I think I really from from his first symphony, I don't think that there is a, a symphonist up to this point who had so many different things to say and redefined what what all those things were throughout their symphonic career. You know, Mozart was, was a fabulous symphonist, but how many, how many times would, would Mozart just kind of write something for the sake of writing something rather than write something to break the mold of the conventions that we knew? Yeah. And I think with this one, we, 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 uh, we, t- we think a lot about convention breaking by the fact of the, 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 the addition of the singers and the voice, but it's also from the form. The form is so epic. So let's get into that a little bit. Matt Manella, you wanted to talk a little bit about the first movement. You want to go ahead and jump in with the thoughts you had about that? Sure. I, I just wanted to take note of how the symphony starts first. It's a symphony in D minor, but it, it starts in the key of the dominant. <clears throat> Where else have we seen that? Is it just the first symphony? Ooh, I, think so. I didn't know we we're having a pop quiz today. No, no it's okay. <laughs> it, starts, it starts in in A. Well, it's not really A either. It's like this open fifth sound, which is really uh, characteristic of Beethoven. We talked about this same thing when we talked about the sixth symphony. But uh, it it I kind of relate this to uh, Mahler's first symphony. I think Mahler is really inspired by by this opening where. Uh, it almost feels like, uh, with, including with the use of incredible use of dynamics, pianissimo sotto voce, really, really soft in the strings, and, and gradually adding wind colors, uh, little by little. Uh, it really feels like we're we're waking up somewhere. Mm. Like this doesn't really feel like the beginning of a symphony. I mean, there's no melody. It's just these this little da 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 da. I mean, can you even call that a motif? I guess you could, uh, but it's it's really the beginning of, of the first theme just chunked up, mm-hmm. right? Like we don't really get the first theme until this full fortissimo entrance where everybody plays and then we're off to the races. It kind of reminds me of how, uh, what Sibelius does, like he, what he did in symphony five, you know, 
It, it, when I hear Sibelius Five, I hear, oh yeah, you probably stole that from Beethoven. The beginning of it, the little doo doo doo, little themes there. Sibelius stole a lot from everybody. Oh, that's right. I forgot you're not. <laughs> okay, we'll have a Sibelius debate, yeah. you and me. Well, that's because when he tried to be original and creative, it just, it just. I'm, I'm gonna stop. I'm gonna get myself in trouble. Okay, okay. We'll save Sibelius Fight Fight Club for another day. Okay, go ahead, Matt. <laughs> No, I'm good. Anybody want to chime chime in about this opening? Oh, well, I mean, there's. I could ask other questions, like, are the six tuplets measured or are they unmeasured? Oh, in the second violins and cellos. That always has. The- you hear them both ways. Or you know, this shimmery sort of non-measured tremolo thing. I'm not sure. Yeah. Any any thoughts on that? Should it should it be one or the other, Brendan or Matt? I personally like it measured. Um, even though he is supposed to be kind of creating this like kind of uh, atmosphere of, of like you said, shimmer and glitter, maybe kind of sort of like fuzzy, like you've like just like woken up and like the images of your ceiling are not entirely clear yet. I still think that there is a little bit of a that this really holds it together and really acts as a motor. Mm, yeah, kind of pull, a pulse that keeps it rolling, yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that, especially as you move through the crescendo um, as you're heading for that fortissimo where everybody slams onto the D. I think you have if you keep it measured, then it makes sense to get when you get all the way to there. And then everything will line up nicely as you push into the big sound that's coming. Yeah, indeed. There's a, a wonderful moment um, uh, a bit further into the movement, uh, about measure 120 or so, um, that uh, highlights kind of what we were talking about earlier, uh, just in how Beethoven was constantly changing certain norms. And uh, so at this at this point in time in this first movement, it's this really silky pianissimo theme in the strings trading with the winds. And he's got the timpani also playing along with this, the same kind of rhythm, um, but a more militaristic rhythm. And I just think that's interesting. You, you rarely see the timpani having uh, serving a melodic function uh, in this way. Haydn would do it from time to time. Beethoven would do it from time to time as well. But, um, also, the size of the orchestra. I mean, there's four horns, and you really notice that. I think it just seems like a bigger sounding orchestra. Uh, in fact, the whole the whole piece really sounds like it's it's a larger orchestra or written for a larger orchestra than it really is. Uh, it doesn't sound at all like the eighth, although there's only a few extra instruments from uh, compared to the eighth symphony. I mean, this is the first symphony that includes four horns, mm-hmm. um, and as we'll notice in, in the later movements, uh, trombones. And then in the last movement, not only does he add the choir and the soloist, but piccolo and contrabassoon. Oh, I love the contra. That, the Janissary March. Oh, yeah, the Janissary March in the last movement. Oh, and extra percussion. Oh, that's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I for, always forget about that. Yeah, that, the, mil- just, the, I mean, the military march stuff. Yeah, go ahead. No, also I want to advocate once again for splitting the first and second violins. Uh, if you've got your score letter D, it's also measure 132, uh, where the violins trade back and forth 
including with the violas. So you could even put violas on the outside if you wanted to. I think yeah. I've seen it done that way, where the mm-hmm. first and second violins together and the violas are on the outside and the cello's just inside. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I think Utah Symphony actually does that. He puts the violas on the outside sometimes. So, yeah, I, I can't... Yeah, that's, yeah, I think I can't think of. Um, I mean, I can't think of a, a real reason not to split them. We talked about in, in earlier shows about how you know the dialogue between the first and the seconds means it's it's really a good idea. A lot of times when doing Beethoven and other classical rep to to have that that seating. Um, so that's that's what I'm doing once I can actually conduct my full orchestra again, and we and I finally get to do my Beethoven year. Okay, good. Well, so what else? What else about the first movement? The retards and on tempos. You know the moment I'm talking about? And it's right back into tempo. Often you hear that retard kind of played through the end of the phrase, but it's not actually supposed to be that way. Yeah, that's just another pet peeve of mine. Well, yeah, I know what you're talking about, um, Matt. Are you looking at the Bernardo score? Yes, I am. Where do they put the retard in indication in that? I'm looking at measure 194. It's at the very, very end of 195. Yeah, it's interesting because I was listening to. There's a great recording by uh, Ricardo Shea and the uh, Leipzig Gewandhaus. And he actually backs that up to pick up the last three sixteenth notes in 194. And that's oh, where wow. he's retard so that you can get those last three in 195 right at that retarded tempo that he's looking for. And then he's right back in tempo in 196. Wow. So it's like okay. a gradual rallentando. Yeah, yeah. So he kind of he just backs it up a measure, really. So I thought it was very effective the way he did it. So I was just curious because I'm looking at the Dover version and it doesn't always jive, so I was just curious. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, going back to something that Larry said about uh, this kind of, and, and I think Matt maybe said this too, is kind of being sort of Sibelian. This really is kind of a little premonition, I guess, I think a little bit of, of Sibelius five, to be, to be very honest, because, um, in this symphony, he writes little hints of the chorale for the fourth movement, but just puts little snippets in every single movement. Um, and so, like, this is, you know, first at measure 75 when he has, you know, the flute doing the... Uh, and I just think that it's a really ingenious thing that he does to to have that. Um, just you know, sometimes we can we can you know go back and 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 hear things that maybe we had played before, but this is the first kind of we're really looking forward to something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's what I was saying. It's like I felt like that that the opening of nine is kind of like the opening of Beethoven five. Well, you know, Sibelius, he you know he steals from the best, I guess. That's uh, <laughs> if you're going to do it, go ahead. That's kind of the uh, the hallmark of all great art, right? It's how well you can steal something else. Fair enough. 
Fair enough. Easy enough. Okay, good. Anything else in the first movement? You want to move on to second movement? Or, uh... Can we talk about the coda real quick? Sure. I mean, Beethoven. Yeah, Beethoven's codas. That's interesting stuff. I mean, this 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 movement is huge, but the the coda kind of puts a uh, an even more final uh, stamp on it. Uh, it's just so so devastating, and, and it's not the longest coda in the world, but it. It, I think it serves to to really kind of emphasize a couple things, um, which is this slippery kind of chromaticism that's happening, um, and also uh, the the death march idea once again is certainly prevalent here. I think, and we don't really get a death march in this symphony other than this one moment. I think mm-hmm. it's really kind of rare, and then all of a sudden it's like this different thing happening at the end of this movement, and it never comes back. Yeah, every time that section starts, I feel like we're like starting an opera scene because it's like so dramatic that I'm expecting like a Giovanni continuation or something happening here. Like it, it really is like it's setting up this moment that doesn't happen on stage. But yeah, it's 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 remarkable how he just uses that baseline, the repetitiveness of those chromatics up up and down that wave undulation underneath those little that march feel. Um, it's just it, it's mind blowing to me. I miss what you said. You said something about a Giovanni. What was what was that you said, Brandon? Well, it just it is because it's like there's just it has this dark dramatic sound, and it feels like that this is an operatic moment. Like there's something that's going to happen on stage, and so I'm expecting like a continuation of some sort of Giovanni moment where he's being dragged down to hell. I was expecting some um, statues to come to life at any moment or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I'm just I'm waiting for the like something's going to happen and. It's just the way he sets it up is is so profound, and and like with Matt saying, you know, we never get we never get this back again, for whatever reason, um, and it's kind of sad because I think <clears throat> this is really something cool. Yeah, he's a teasing it. He's teasing for the big finish. I think. All right, good. Go ahead, Matt. Would you all agree that this the second movement is is more or less a continuation of the first movement? Hmm. Gentlemen. I would agree with that. And I will, you know, it, it was interesting. And I didn't have this thought until just now where, you know, Larry had said uh, Sibelius had stolen from the best. And Brandon, do you remember when you gave a wonderful presentation a couple weeks ago in Mahler seminar about uh, Mahler 6 and the movement differences in, in Mahler 6? Yep, I do. I now am thinking that, you know, putting the scherzo of Mahler 6 uh, directly uh, after the first movement now is kind of a correspondence and a continuation from Beethoven 9 um, in doing that. You know, uh, as, as Matt said, you know, it, it is a continuation of the, of the first movement. And I think we have that really truly because we don't have the slow movement. The slow movement's in a completely different key. Um, I shouldn't say completely different key. It's related. Uh, it, But you're right. We go from sinister D minor to sinister D minor with a little bit of a smirk. Hmm. I like the smirk. That's funny. I guess I guess the, 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 the main 
notable feature of this, uh, among many, is uh, I should say, is the hypermeter because it's in one. It marks it molto vivace, molto vivace with uh, uh, one sixteen to the bar dotted uh, dotted half note three four bar. And for a long time, I struggled with where the actual phrase begins. I wanted it to be bum 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 one and a one and a two and a three and a four and a one. But now I think it's actually one and a two and a three and a four and a one and a two and, ah. a, three and a four. Even though the harmonic change doesn't occur where you expect it, it occurs on the second of the hyper beats. So I was wondering what your thoughts were about that, gentlemen, about how to how to organize this. Uh, just to be able to keep your place. I've seen conductors get lost in here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've never done it. Um, but I would imagine that it's, it's unless you've got it mapped out just so that it, it's sort of, sort of in, the, in the vein of the opening movement of the Fifth Symphony, that it can be yep. fairly difficult to stay, to keep your place unless you've got it down cold. Exactly. Yes. I was thinking the same thing. It is very much like the opening of the Fifth. Go ahead. McKeever, were you going to jump in? Yeah. Um, I mean, I I am one for as as long as you can really make sense of your phrasing. I think that you can put your phrasing however you want. Um, and I really hear this primarily in in groups of four. Um, you know, the this I really hear mm-hmm. that for for quite some time. Um, you know, and he does. At, it's very interesting that he does this. Uh, he has, you know, at measure one seventy eight um, after the um, the key change, uh, he writes "ritmo di tre battute," uh, which is, you know, essentially to be phrased in three groups of three. Um, and the first, I think, really, uh, you know direction to the conductor to phrase it in a certain way um which you know is maybe like you know pre mahler uh notes to the conductor um hmm. but i i think that to to keep it to keep it organized it's easiest to hear at the beginning for me in in, in groups of four i i agree completely yeah yeah the hypermetering is is such a can be can be a lifesaver when you have when you have that down and have those phrase markings. Thankfully, Beethoven does spell it out for us, as Matt said, and and yeah, you know, I never really thought about that connection to Mahler. Mahler must have must have seen that and and thought, oh, that's a good idea. And I'm just gonna yeah. say what I mean when I mean it. There you go. Hey, novel concept. I'll jump, in there and say that, I'll jump in and say this is actually a throwback to Vivaldi. Because Vivaldi used to do that in some of his music too. He would write in these markings and in these indications to group things. Ah. So this Good. is going to back to some Vivaldi time. Good catch. Okay. Yeah. All right. Credit credit to Vivaldi, the red haired priest. Yeah. Well, well, we'll talk. We'll talk about legacy of Beethoven at the end of the show. Um, Good. All right. Excellent. So let's. You want to go ahead and move on to the next movement, or is there any more with this one? Hello. <laughs> I, I'm thinking because I mean I think there's a lot that can be said about about this movement. I mean obviously there's a lot of things that can be said about the whole symphony. I just I have to say that I think that the uh, you know the trio of this mm-hmm. is has got to be 
and I, and I, I'm, I'm just probably going to get stabbed by Beethoven at some point when I. Fortunately, he's dead. In the after, well, when I see him oh, in the afterlife. In the so afterlife, I'm gonna, okay. So I'm going to die again. Um, <laughs> it, it's got to be just like one of the cutest things that he ever wrote. <laughs> <laughs> Charming. Yeah, it's how is it not adorable? There's some uh, some question as to the proper tempo there because uh, mm. you know Beethoven, of course, dictated a lot of these metronome marks to uh, to Carl, and so at, his nephew at, at four at four twelve. Yes, his nephew. Thank you. At presto, and it says half note equals, but. Really, that it has to be. Uh, it's in Alibrev. It's in cut time. But really, it has to be one beat to the bar, a whole note to the beat, uh, instead of uh, twice as slow. Yeah, that's all I have on this movement. All right, <laughs> there you go. But important, important information. Very t- well. Also, oh, no, it's not the last I have in this movement. I figured this is actually my favorite. One of my favorite moments in the whole symphony. I, I, I said earlier, it's not my favorite movement, but I think that that passage. Uh, where the horns play their duet and the first violins, second violins, violas, cellos play this, this, this raindrop staccato thing. I think it's just a stroke of brilliance. I can't tell you why I love it other than to say that it, 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 it affects me differently. It mm-hmm. is uh, sublime. Yeah. Indeed, indeed. Agreed. All right, good. Third movement, gentlemen? How slow should we go? <laughs> as slow as possible. I mean, Tempo-wise. No. It, it depends on what, if you want your orchestra to be alive for the fourth. <laughs> oh, that's a really good point. It's, oh gosh. You know, I grew up on a, an old Bernstein recording, and he just goes so slow. mm uh, which is not what you normally think. Yeah. But um, I don't think it can actually be that slow. I think it has to feel almost as if it's in two to the bar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although that's that's a little bit faster than, than marked. But uh, So I, I've heard it done both ways where it's super slow. Um, and I actually performed this with uh, Ada DeVart, and he took it really slow. Mm-hmm. Um. And, um, which for me, the third movement is, Matt, I think you were mentioning this at the beginning too. This is my, if I, if there was only one thing I could conduct my, like my whole life, I would choose this as one of them for sure. Um, this movement, because it's just so amazing and beautiful. Um, but yeah, it's just, if, if it's slow, then it's like 15 minutes long or longer and the choir's asleep and the audience is asleep. And the cellos and basses are dying. You know, it's just like, um, and I think there's a, if it does go too slow, I think you can lose the cohesiveness and the direction of where this is going, because this really does lead right into the fourth. And even though we're kind of relaxing a minute before we get to the big finale, um, I still think there needs to be some forward motion. And so I could see the argument for going, picking this up just a little bit, but um, I've heard a recording of this. It was pretty fast, and the conductor actually was in two. Um, and it felt like it was, for me personally, it was a little bit too much. Like we're just kind of breezing through everything really quickly, and we're missing some of the finer moments. And 
and he shaped it really well and, and the players responded really nicely. But um, for me personally, I, I kind of like some sort of middle ground in there, maybe somewhere between 60 and 70 beats, um, you know, but I think if it's too fast, I think you kind of lose that feeling that Beethoven was going for. Hmm. Yeah. What was that second conductor? Oh, a fast one. Uh, gosh, I'll have to go back and remember. I know that, um, the recording I just listened to with Shai, he, he does this in two. His beats a little bit faster as well. Um, and then he kind of relaxes into it a little bit. So it actually came out really nice. Um, I don't remember who the other one was off the top of my head right now, though. Hmm. Hmm. So, Brandon, you've done, you've, you've done the symphony. Would you do that in San Diego when you're with the symphony choir there? Yeah, so I've sung this symphony twice um, with the San Diego Symphony, um, and you know it is both both times. It's it's a remarkable, obviously it's a mar- remarkable work. Um, I will say it's the only time that season that the symphony sold all their tickets. Um, so <laughs> something to be said about adding a choir to stuff, but more people um, on stage is what they say. Uh, <laughs> but um, you know, I, I think it's interesting to watch the rehearsal process with this as well. I think I I was fascinated to watch how this all kind of got put together with the orchestra sitting from the choir seats. And, you know, for the choir, it's a long wait. Um, And I guess that's something we can talk about when we get into the fourth movement, but it's a long time before they do anything. So, um, you know, if they're not real focused, then sadly they're going to miss out on a lot of good music um, because a lot of them just kind of check out. But yeah, I had the opportunity to do this with Ada DeVard and, um, Oh gosh, who was the other one? Ken Kiesler, actually. Um, oh, so yeah, totally different styles, totally different approaches, but uh, it was fun. It was fun to do. Very cool. Well, you 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 you've you've upped all of us because I don't think any of us have actually performed this one before, and I, I haven't I haven't done it in the in the sitting down or standing up. I I only sung in the last movement, and that was actually um, in. Uh, in Maine, actually, oh, okay. at, at Ken Kiesler's uh, workshop one year. Is oh. that where you did it, Brandon, with uh, with Madomic? What's that? Sorry. Did you did you sing that with uh, with Kiesler at his Madomic festival? Um, maybe I don't remember oh, what the. Just curious. Yeah, yeah, it was in San Diego though. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, I think he was just there. He was he was like he was part of a workshop thing he was doing with. Yeah students and they tacked that on as another part of the performance oh, neat. so yeah yeah it's a favorite of his good deal all right well what do you say F- time for the last movement the big one yeah that's like a whole symphony into itself well you know i was just thinking it by itself it's it's longer than many haydn symphonies you know uh it's almost as long as the fifth by itself so it's a it's a monster by the way one thing i had to say about the you know in ter- terms of the the legacy of this symphony is that, uh, and I may be wrong on this, so feel free to write in a cards and letters and, or if you can correct me right now today, guys, but, um, that Sony, when they were developing the CD, um, they, the, somebody said that it had to be big enough, have enough space to hold all of Beethoven nine on one disc. And that's about, you know, 72 minutes is about as long as a traditional CD was. So I don't know if that's true or not, but you know, it would make sense to sort of honor the impact of that symphony. So anyway, sort of like uh, sort of like altering tempos uh, to fit certain recordings on LPs or on 78s back in the day. Oh my God. Or, yes. not, or not doing repeats or not. 
doing their pizza. Yeah. Well, I know my, my found an old set of my grandmother's uh, 78s. Um, and it had check, check five on something like 10 discs or something like it was, it, you know, huge, just like, you know, three minutes, you know, check five, you know, five minutes at a time. I'm mean, like, good Lord. <laughs> you know, we live, we live in a golden age. Huh? Like there's these big breaks then in the movement. Oh yeah. There. I mean, just, it just stops. And then you have to flip the disc over and keep going or something. I don't know if it's five minutes at a time, but it was, you know, 78s were, were pretty short on the side. So. Anyway, okay, enough of the uh, uh, rants about my grandmother's old 78 collection. So, uh, fourth movement, the big one. Choir finally has to wake up. All right, how do we start? Can I talk about that first chord first? Sure. I was going to say, what a wake up. It is. And you know what's remarkable about this is, I always thought it was a strange sound, and it really is this sort of unearthly beastly bah, roar out of the orchestra no strings but uh it pits uh two harmonies against each other the the tonic harmony of the 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 main key area of the work d minor against the key area which just came from b flat major and he juxtaposes this at the same time so there's this half step diff- dissonance from the a to the b flat that is is i, I mean Frankly, I don't know if it's that effective. I always felt that it was this awkward way to begin a movement. And uh, I don't know if it's just a voicing thing, and I'm, I'm, I just don't particularly care for the sounds of that. But there's probably just something that I'm not quite getting yet about it. But um, I do think it's interesting how, how he combines those two harmonies right from the get-go as if to say, this last movement is going to be a recap of the other three movements, if you will. And uh, I'm trying to foreshadow a little bit wink wink hint hint yeah i think that's actually a really good point that i had never thought of you know because you're right we did have we did have just essentially the two the two harmonies that existed beforehand and if they're overlaid with each other even though there is a very um you know very close harmonic relationship um i think having that you know that a against the the b flat but then added in with the other you know f and f f and uh, d i mean it's just it, it it does create almost like this sort of like alarm clock effect yes it's just massive tension that almost feels inappropriate after the the serene piece of the previous movement really and actually one other thing i didn't think of right away but it's not just D minor, it's D minor and second inversion. So the A's in the bass, mm. which, which is the other, you know, the dominant of the, of the main key. Um, so yeah, there's a lot quote unquote, that's wrong end quote with this opening. Uh, and we haven't even gotten to the really controversial part yet, which is, uh, you know, do you do this bum, in the style of rachetati, but does that mean slow it way down? Or does it mean keep it in tempo? And he's just saying it's in the style of a recitative, so it's a little um, conmoto or um, um, rubato or something. What are your thoughts about that? How fast or slow should it be? What do you like? What do you think works? Well, I'm, I'm going to just—I mean, I'm going to defer to Brandon on this, who is our our, our man of man of man of voice, um, but. Recitative doesn't necessarily mean it's slow, right? It can just, it just, you know, recitative no. can be quite fast. Yeah, I, I look at this as I think there's a there's an ebb and flow 
that goes with this. And I think it's I think overall you have to keep it within the tempo of, of the, the meter. Um, but I think there is a little bit of freedom with I can speed up these eighth notes just a little bit and then I can pull back on this part as the phrase moves through there. And I and I think and I remember I do remember one rehearsal with Edo uh, where he actually I think it was the final night rehearsal before the concert weekend. Um, he actually dismissed all of the orchestra except for the cellos and basses. And he worked on this section um, with them for about 25 extra minutes um, at the no end kidding. of just to try to get this down because there's a lot of ways to interpret this. Um, and, but I, I do think there needs to, there needs to be a sense of freedom, like it's a vocal line, but it does need to stay in the tempo. And, and so I think that's, that's the challenge I think for the players and the conductor is to, is to strike that, that right, the right balance between letting you have a little bit of that soloistic freedom, kind of like a vocal line or like a vocalist would, would ask for, but then keeping it right in time because there's still more to come and, and we'll get to the true vocal stuff in a little bit. Interestingly, Beethoven was known amongst other things uh, uh, for, for, writing the basses independently of the cellos and this is a case where that's not the case where the the cellos and basses are sharing the same exact music uh, which lends it a, a, a sort of a gravitas I think that normally wouldn't exist if it was just the cellos or just the basses the, the basses are really doubling the cellos they're real double basses here the cellos are the bass line uh, of course foreshadowing the, the vocal moments but um what else about this is interesting? Uh, number one, I think, is the way he highlights uh, or recalls uh, the different movements. Uh, first, the first movement, right? He does the he, he goes in order, doesn't he? Is that right? Yeah. But um, so first we've got uh, got that little bit of the first movement. Uh, good, thank you, Matt. And um, and then we go back into the second movement. And then into the third movement, a little bit, a little snippet, just a couple bars here and there. And all these divided by, segmented by, or commented on by the cellos and bass thing. And finally, then we do get a bit of an introduction of the Ode to Joy theme at like what, measure 77 with the, the key change. Uh, before we have these big horn blasts that signal the end of this introduction and then the start of really what I think of as the movement proper, which is the, the cellos and basses playing this Ode to Joy theme just in the distance. And it's interesting how how so many orchestras and conductors really like to start that Ode to Joy theme just so softly, almost as if you, you can barely hear it. But it's, it's only a piano. It's not two P's or, or three P's. It's it's not even sotto voce. It's just one P. Um, so I think maybe it's it's over dramatized a little bit. It's an interesting effect. I, I won't I won't say it's wrong, but um, I can't tell you the number of times where I've I've had to turn the volume down on a recording because of this introduction, and then not been able to hear like the next thirty seconds of music because yeah. the cellos and bass are too soft. That's why it's hard to listen to classical music in the car. You're right. There's a recording thing too. There, I think, also is the, the they use a lot less compression on classical recordings. Well, I mean, it, it, you know, to have a truer sound for it, yeah. 
Yeah. I think one of the things that I, I find striking with this leading up to where we have the actual theme come, come in at, at, at 92 is it's sort of like you have the cellos and basses trying to start their singing. They're trying to start this melody. They're trying to start the song and it keeps getting interrupted. And so then they have to stop and then they come back and then it gets interrupted. So it, it, there's kind of like this, this emergence, like this struggle to, to finally break free that's sort of happening. And this is, of course, my interpretation of this, but I get like this sense that we're trying to, to break forth out of the ground or out of the seed pot or whatever. Um, the alien is coming out of somebody's stomach. I don't know. Um, Whoa. <laughs> something, something is like happening and it can't quite take off yet. And then we get these little snippets from the other movements and these little comments on the side. And then finally, we we finally get this little burst into an, into the D major, and it's like, okay, now we can go. Hmm. Interesting. Aliens in the in the seed seed pod. I, you know, not, well, you someone's, know, someone's been a lot of science fiction. I don't think that's in the grout from back in the day, but okay, go ahead, Manella. <laughs> uh, if I can fast forward a little Please. bit to. Uh, the reprise of the very opening of this movement. Um, oh, in fact, just before it, uh, just before the presto at 208, um, there's in the flutes and then in the oboes, I think easily one of the most problematic sections of the whole piece. Going, getting that poco ritenente right, where do you switch into four? And then how do you get back into the tempo? Because the tempo one is on the upbeat. It's marked on the upbeat rather than on the downbeat in the following bar. Do you follow me? Do you see where that is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> no, no response. <laughs> Maybe. Okay. They have no help for you, you Matt. I couldn't see you now. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm looking at the score. Yeah. So I was wondering what, what your preferences were there um, in terms of the slowing down and then how to get back into the tempo one. Hmm. Thoughts, gentlemen? That's a really hard question. <laughs> Just, um, yeah, gosh. not to put anybody on the spot. No. <laughs> and we don't um, have to go into detail. But um, I guess beat four, that last beat four has to be, I mean, technically the first half of the beat on beat four is in the old tempo, and then the upbeat isn't in the new tempo. So I don't know. Actually, I haven't thought about this enough. So I'm I'm uh, I'm putting my foot in my mouth, I suppose, because I asked a question that I can't answer. Oh, it's it's well, it's a question a for those, it's though. a food for thought. It's a food for thought. It's okay. Yeah. Oh, Freunde, nicht dieser Töne. Did I say that right, Brandon? <laughs> yeah, not too bad. Done it all right. <laughs> Thank you. You're very. Nice. I will say you know I will say that as a young lad. Uh, singing young lad back in the day um it was always inspirational for me to see somebody as profound as beethoven open a choral setting with the bass soloist instead of a tenor or a soprano i was oh, so that move that must have been Thank so empowering. yeah and he, he even writes an ossia in there do you have that c sharp ossia instead of the e instead of that big fifth yeah i do oh you I know what both. That's a big fifth. Interesting. Yeah. So it's the inverted the inverted motif from the first movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and again, this is another thing where you see this this bass line trying to break out because 
here, you know, we start this section now into the choral part with those clashing chords again at the beginning, that kind of like really weird car horn sound for me. Um, and all of a sudden the bass soloist is like, all right, enough, stop. We're done with listening to these sounds, you know, no more of these tones, he says, <laughs> let's move on to something better. Um, and so I think you finally get this declamation where now the bass is going to break through and we have something profound going to happen. It's a little bit high for bass, isn't it? No, not really. Not really. It's up to an F sharp. It's not high? Okay. No, no, that's fine. Oh, so you guys can you guys can sing like a lot of notes. Wow, that was that easily the most educated sounding thing I've ever said. <laughs> As singers, Ast- we sing a lot of notes, yes. Astute observation. Hopefully on a Friday. It's been a long week. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Um, Freude. Freude. Yeah. Okay. Good. Oh, speaking of which, did, do you guys know that that Berlin Wall recording where Ber- yeah. Bernstein changed changed the, to, the to word freedom? Freiheit? Yeah, Freiheit. Yeah. Uh, the, How do and- you feel about that? I thought it was appropriate. I mean, it's it's okay. It's a, it was a political statement. It was a major. I mean. <clears throat> I remember when the Berlin Wall fell down because I am probably the only one of the four of us. Nah, hey, hey, no, me and Brandon, me and Brandon. Okay, me and Brandon. Oh, okay. Come on now, Brent. Brent, that's right. Brandon's my uh, cohort there, uh, age cohort. But yeah, it fell down. It was a, it was a major, major thing, and the concert happened. I God, I want to say it was one of his last, if not his last concert. He died not long after it. Um, but anyway, it was it was a major thing, and I remember watching uh, the video of it. And um, so, of all the things Bernstein changes, I was okay with that one. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I wanted to sing it that way uh, in the last election. Too soon? Too soon? <laughs> no, not no. We'll wait to January twentieth. <laughs> wait, do we have a do we have a president elect yet? <laughs> Shut up. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. Don't they vote? They vote next week, right? Well, then he'll be the. Well, wait. Well, this is gonna this is gonna air after that, gentlemen. So let's we're we're into the future. So <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> let's let's get to the Janissary March, and then, okay. then we can talk about war. Fair enough. Yes, the Janiss- So the Janissary March. I mean, this is this is one of my favorite spots. Kind of kind of out of nowhere, this little Turkish military band yeah. thing, and just a little bit of background. Like the Jan- the Janissaries were, um, um, like I don't, anyway. But the point is that they became an elite military uh, unit. And so the, the Janissaries had this long tradition in the in the Turkish military, and it became this thing in Vienna. And you have like the ruins was it the ruins of Athens march has kind of the Janissary influence, um, and that's the kind of the cool thing about Vienna is that it was this international city with all these kind of different influences. So anyway, the, the sort of the dropping in of this kind of Turkish military band music, kind of out of nowhere, and then as this sort of lead in to the big moment, and we hear the theme. In this kind of like, I don't want to say hokey way, but it's this kind of fun, light way of, of hearing it before we hear it in this big dramatic way. So I've always thought it was an interesting juxtaposition there. I just love how it just starts with these little blubs. Boom. 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 I'm sorry, what? It's like if Jabba the Hutt decided to write a symphony. <laughs> All right, you've ruined it for me now, man. The job of waste a good opportunity to throw in a Star Wars reference. <laughs> Boom. What about Larry, I'm curious, I'm curious about this, Larry. Um, 
yeah where you were talking about that because this is a section that i've always struggled with personally is like i i don't get it why include this the way he's written it and then have this little march and this little thing because it's almost like all of a sudden we end up in a beer hall and the tent is getting drunk and is trying to rally the you know it's like a weird like a sad les mis kind of moment. And <laughs> Yeah. What's going on here? Well, like, I've never the so feel, to me it doesn't feel like it fits, and so I'm curious as to what you think about it. Well, this is this. I don't have a you know. I, there's definitely scholarship out there that I should know and probably read, but it, the Janissary band style was just popular in Vienna. Uh, I mean, the Ottoman Empire wasn't that far down the road from Vienna. You know, it was nearby, and be, being an international and trading city, they had influences from all over the world. I'm not sure why it was a popular thing in Vienna, this Turkish military music, but it but it was. Um, and uh, why he used it, I I don't know. Um, I wonder I, sometimes if it's if it's just you know, since we're talking about all of humanity in in some way, if he's just trying to include another piece of that. Don't don't way, forget about the Turks, respect. kind of. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I, don't know. It's, it's I just, should. It's a little bizarre to me. It, it's a great little moment, but I just, I'm still, I'm trying to figure out exactly how this all connects together smoothly. Okay. Well, we'll and do, do, Matt, do you have any insights onto why the Janissary band music, or we should just, uh, we should say that for another show and do a little research and no, I, I not, not embarrass ourselves for the musicology fact, faculty. Yes. Yeah, I think we should just accept it as fact for now and not touch it too hard. Fair, fair enough. It is there. <laughs> it's there. Boom. Boom. It's no, clearly I, I, there. I mean, I, I, I know I've heard, the, I know I've read about this and the, the details are escaping me, but it, I think it was, I think it went a bit beyond just that it was in vogue. I think it had, it possibly was a political thing. I think it was, did you mention the Ottoman thing? I think it was the Ottoman Turks in particular. Right. Well, this, um, the, the Janissary, yeah. Janissaries were, were Ottoman Empire a military regiment made of people from you know, all, all parts of the empire, but you know, anyway, yeah, yeah. it's this Ottoman military music. I think maybe I saw like a John Elliott Gardner interview or something on this very thing. Oh, okay. Um, because that's one of the recordings that I think is, it's, it's very interesting that there's, there's, there's two, right. There's the John Elliott Gardner one and there's the Roger Norrington one, mm-hmm. um, where they, they do interesting tempo things and, yeah. um, the choices are, you know, for modern recordings, the choices are, are quite, uh, classical, if you will. Well, so very, it's the historically informed form, performance. Sorry, what? No, no, go ahead. What were you saying? I was just saying, they, they do the historically informed performance practice yes. stuff. Yeah, and, and almost almost too strict in time sometimes, especially this movement. Um, but I, it actually brings me to another point I wanted to make and a question I wanted to raise, which is, how do you go about deciding the tempo of this march? Hmm. I have an answer. Okay, tell us. What's what's the <laughs> truth, Matt? The march tempo isn't what determines... The march isn't what determines the tempo. It's letter K. It's sempre listesso tempo, where um, we get into... Right after the tenor is finished, or rather, the is it the, the trio, or the quartet, rather, the vocal quartet has finished singing. Mm-hmm. Um, because the the strings have and so if if we want to you know totally destroy them and, and yeah. make it sound awful, we can go too fast, uh, but it can't be too slow either. So I think I think I take my tempo from whatever I want the tempo to be at that fugue section. Yeah, I think it's the fugue sec. The, the tempo of the strings can do the fugue section. I, I agree completely. Yeah. yeah, it has to be the same. McKeever yeah, agrees. That much is clear. All right. 
good. And then we have the huge, awesome buildup to the big moment. This is, I mean, from the Janissary band moment all the way to the big corral. I mean, that's just, I just love that as a, as a, a journey, you know, it's a, it's, he takes you on a journey, grabs you by the ears and just pulls you, you know, doesn't, doesn't, doesn't let up. It's awesome. Great. This is like somebody turning the volume up to 11. <clears throat> so you just get the sound, right? It just all of a sudden crescendos into like, and then it explodes. It's really, I think though, there is a danger here. Um, especially if conductors uh, are not used to working with choirs. And Matt, I know you touched on this earlier, but it's a killer to sing. Um, Beethoven in all his glory, I don't know if the hearing hurt this idea, but it didn't. he did not write this in a good range for singers to maintain. Um, and I think without helping the choir, and, and granted you're going to work with your, your choral director on this, um, but... I think it's really important that the choir pace itself and not just scream starting at this point right after that fugue because you've still got a little ways to go and you're not going to make it if you're just all of a sudden overcome with emotion and you just want to shout everything. So You've been, you've been waiting yeah, for 50 minutes. Overdoing it. Yeah. That, that Andante Maestoso is so exposed to, uh, and it's slow. I mean, it's just slow and high. Yeah. All right. But interestingly, uh, to, to kind of make another connection here, that same Andante Maestoso at 595 is um, that falling half step to the falling third. Um, it's the same gesture that begins the third movement. For what it's worth. Anyway, just a little connection there. Mm-hmm. I I I really I have a hard time with this from here up until the very end. Really, I, I just it just is too long for for me. Are you talking about yeah. right after the corral? Yeah. Well, before we get on to that, one thing I've always thought was cool is that that chord that comes right after the corral. You know, because you have this glorious moment, right? The 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 ode to joy. You know, the famous section, and it's just brimming with with op, op, optimism and just joy well there you go um and then this dark chord and it's just so such a stark and i've always thought of that as a really great example of these contrasts that are in beethoven's life we talked when we started this thing we talked about his personality and the the contrasts between joy and pain that he had in his life and and how he's probably had some sort of um version of bipolar disorder or something like that and how and to see it musically represented in such a dramatic way that's always stuck out for me i just wanted to sort of you know put a flag on that one and you know anyway that, that's 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 something i use as an example in my history classes when i'm talking about beethoven's shifting personality and nature within his music it's an important thing so okay good and so matt what you're saying about going from after the corral onward too long too many notes too many notes, as the emperor would say. That's right. Yeah. No, I mean, I, 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 I've got no problem with it. It's, it's just that I think it is just a little long-winded for what it is, if, especially in the choral writing. If the choral writing was a bit more varied and not so homophonic, mm-hmm. and if it had, well, it's got its fugal moments and it has its, its, its non-fugal moments, but. When I think of really, really wonderful choral writing, I think of uh, Mozart, mm-hmm. uh, for instance, and just how, how 
effortless it sounds, that's the last word I would use to describe how this sounds for chorus. And and I get I just get a little tired of it. That's all. I th- you feel uh, the struggle. I, yeah, it's it's it is, and, and um, I think that's one of the reasons I, I love that that Utah Symphony recording so much. It's just it always sounded so easy. Yeah. Brandon, what are, what are your thoughts on this? Having actually uh, sung it, does is it feel the struggle there? Oh, it, the struggle is real. <laughs> <There's> <laughs> struggle. Many rehearsal, you walk out just almost hoarse, and your voice is exhausted, and then you know you overdid it, you know, because you're also trying to compensate, trying to fill the space with no audience, and shout it as loud as you can. You know, I, I agree with you, man. I think that as far as you know, if he was trying to make a really nice oral writing thing like a Mesa Solemnus or something, you know, this is not it. Um, but, you know, the fact that there is so much homophonic writing, I, I really, it's really about the declamation of the poem and trying to get the words out. So everybody understands it. Everybody knows how to say it. Um, and everybody can hear it clearly. And I think that's really what he's going for here. He's just making a statement um, using the choir to do that, but it is brutal. Um, and so, like I said earlier, it really is, Behoove, you know, it behooves the conductors working with the choir and then together that to really shape this well so that you don't exhaust your choir and require them to all of a sudden turn into, you know, all of these string and brass instruments themselves um, because they really they, they are there for a reason. Um, but it's really tough. And at this point in the piece, you know, we're almost done, but you still got to have some some gas in the tank to finish. Yeah, that ending is just, you know, pedal to the metal. That how he how he ends that the whole thing. Mm. There's so many quick little tempo changes too, mm-hmm. uh, and and getting those smoothly. I mean, I imagine that being the focus of getting those to go smoothly. I, I imagine that would be the focus of many a rehearsal. Is those yeah, last few transitions on the last couple pages? Oh, for sure. The transitions are are crazy. It's you know you get this kind of tempo whiplash that happens. Um, because it is a lot of just all of a sudden you take off and then you slow down and you take off again and then you're like, wait, what's happening? And then there's a mysterious section. You got to be kind of quiet. And it's just like, it, it's a little bit, it's a little bit chaotic. Yeah. yeah. Well, there it is. It's, uh, you know, not easy like in, in any Beethoven, but the very end of it, it almost always brings everybody to their feet immediately. Well, it's, it's one of the most amazing endings uh, and when I when I teach my music appreciation class, I, I I talk about the you know the journey that we go on in the classical period with the symphony, and I compare how Haydn ends his last symphony, and how Beethoven ends his last well the last symphony we know of Haydn maybe there's more we don't know but anyway, but I I play I play that and I play the end of the ninth and I said they both wanted to end strong, but this is what happens within a generation. I mean, Beethoven studied with Haydn. These guys, you know are in close proximity and a lot has changed. And then afterwards it just, it's like it's off to the races. So I want to get to that in a second, but any, any more thoughts on the ending of the, uh, or the fourth movement? Okay. Well, let's talk about the legacy then. Let's talk about what, what, what comes, comes from Beethoven nine in particular. And when you look at the 19th century and you look at the writings of the people, you know, you have people like Brahms who look at Beethoven and, and say, I'm, I'm in his shadow. I'm following in his footsteps. And then Liszt, I mean, Liszt and Wagner, same thing. They kind of take different things from Beethoven. I think, um, you can make a case. They can, they both make a case of how they, their music, it kind of is in that, um, in, in, in the, 
the line of Beethoven, but they go in much different directions. And it's a testament to just how much he contributed that so many composers could get so much inspiration. Um, you know, Bruckner, the way, uh, you know, he starts all his symphonies, like Beethoven 9, right? Am I, am I, do, do, they, do any Bruckner symphonies not start with tremolo? Or I mean, it's, yeah, and I mean, I, you know, anyway, but the point is, is that, you know, of, of, of one person to, who could cast a shadow over a whole century of writing um, is just, I mean, there's nothing like it. Anyway, thoughts, thoughts on the legacy, you know, I've got, I've got one word and that's epic. Yeah. And I think of what would the first epic symphony be? I think of this piece, followed closely by uh, Symphony Fantastique, which was just a few years after this. Absolutely. And then we have to wait a little bit longer. <clears throat> I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily call any of Brahms symphonies epic, for instance. Maybe, maybe the Fourth Symphony, hmm. um, but not until like Bruckner or um, mm-hmm. uh, Richard Strauss do we really get this. I mean, aside from you know Wagnerian whatever and, and and operas before beethoven which are certainly epic in, in their scope and in the music uh that they that they highlight uh, i think this is like really the nice symphony is like really the first epic symphony just in in terms of its scope and its length you can see how how Mahler really kind of picks up the ball from that mm-hmm. with his first symphony and and just keeps making them bigger and longer and more epic and introduces new elements uh, in really in each symphony of this. Yeah, and and what's that? I'm I'm gonna fail. Take, they're gonna take away my music history related minor. How many years between Beethoven nine to Mahler one were there? I mean, it's oh gosh, it's over. only what seventy uh, maybe? Yeah, what four? Uh, ninth symphony was what eighteen twenty four. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then Mahler's first is what eighteen eighty. I gotta look it up real quick. It's eighteen eighty eight. Might be eighteen ninety. Might be. I think it's the early eighteen nineties. Yeah, but what the uh, point? The point is like decades, and he's still influential. Eighty seven. Yeah, yeah. Over over. 80, yeah, eighty. Yeah. Over six decades, 60, and he's uh, still sixty three years. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, it's just like yeah, over six decades, and he's still this epic influence on composers. Um, so anyway, incidentally, I think the, the Mahler reorchestrations of Beethoven symphonies are fascinating. Yeah. Well, let's, I let, agree. Yeah. Well, let's, let's take a minute and we've alluded to this, but, um, let's talk a, just to get, get our thoughts on historically performed practices, these traditions that we've talked about over the course of talking about these symphonies, you know, versus, uh, a middle way, you know? I, I tend to go the middle way, as we've talked about. I'm I'm very much of a if it's in the ink, I'm going to kind of go with it unless I have a strong reason not to. But you know, I, I do worry about us, you know, holding too much to the old rom- the romantic conducting traditions that came through the Wagnerian school, and you know, Wagner kind of wanting to maybe almost make Beethoven change Beethoven to make it fit more with what he was thinking, you know, as evidence of he was doing it, Wagner was doing it the right way. I don't, I don't know. But anyway, but I, uh, I love the historically performed ones, but they do sometimes um, jar the ear because I am so used to the great, you know, romantically influenced early and mid 20th century conductors. So as conductors well, going, it's just so different because the, the instruments are, are fundamentally different, especially the way the, the bow it. So, mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's just a it's just a different sound and and you can hear that and 
it, it, it is kind of conducive to some things in in the piece. Some things become a bit more idiomatic for the strings, I think, but also they become much harder because of the, the, the instruments are just less projecting. Mm-hmm. So you have to fight a little bit maybe against the winds and the brass. Yeah. But but going forward as as conductors, um, what 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 do you what what do you guys think about those traditions and and versus the you know trying to be really strict with the historically performed stuff? What do you what do you think, McKeever, Brandon? You know, I'm I'm about kind of like what you are. I'm about halfway like in the middle. Um, you know, I think that there was a period of time, and especially throughout the legacy of of recordings, where a lot of things got over romanticized. Um, and you know, as much as I, I love, uh, you know, what what Leonard Bernstein had done for music, I do think that there are some liberties that he takes that are, um, to to my personal sense, just uh, I don't want really to use the word inappropriate, but like like taking things of too slow, you know, um, mm-hmm. that just like don't make sense uh, in 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 a in a tempo in a tempo way. Um, I mean, I remember when I started getting into uh, listening to a myriad of recordings uh, of orchestral pieces. Like when I was a bit younger, I compared one recording that Bernstein did with I think it was the the Vienna Phil to a recording that uh, came out recently of the Minnesota Orchestra um, doing doing Beethoven 9. And the opening of the, the, um, the fourth movement to the first chorale uh, in the Vonska recording maybe took two minutes. In the Bernstein recording, I think it took seven. And I'm like, how how do you get that drastic of a difference um you know between <laughs> between that and uh i think that in thinking about things of historical practice i mean you have to remember now that you know instruments are different they can do different things and are we to play these pieces as if they were you know how they were uh first heard or are we supposed to with the modern sound, mm-hmm. yeah, these these are the questions we we have to address. All right, well, that's 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 like I said, that's the job. You know, that's what we're supposed to do. All right, well, let's get into final thoughts, gentlemen. The the symphony, the, the podcast is now longer than the symphony itself, so you you could have listened to the whole Beethoven nine instead of us talking about it at this point, but that's okay. Uh, so, final thoughts, final thoughts on the symphony before we wrap this up. Brandon, anything? Yeah, I, I think for me, I mean, obviously this work is sort of like a, you know, it's a turning point for the classical period of music into the romantic period for sure. And we've already talked about how so many composers going forward are now frightened um, by where Beethoven left off and they can barely approach a symphony, let alone know what to do with one at the end. Um, and then, of course, the whole superstition about writing nine and then kicking the bucket. Um, that sticks around for a long time through Mahler's time. Yeah, Mahler didn't help with that. Yeah, but you know, I think in a way, I'm I'm really happy that Beethoven was able to do this for himself 
because I think for a long time he's wanted to express all of this. And it was until it wasn't until 19 or 1824 when he could finally do that. And the legacy that, that has left us now, and just the fact that you have that corral tacked onto the end, you know, that has sort of become this, you know, unofficial humanity anthem in some ways um, that tends to pop up when people need something to rally around or feel good about things or, or get past big dramatic moments in life. You know, I think that's something that's really profound about that. I, I don't know of any other piece of music other than maybe his fifth symphony that is so well known um, that everybody universally can just sort of like, Oh yeah, I know who that is. Um, and it resonates in, in some way. So for me, this has always been a symphony that has, has really resonated, um, with me and, and, you know, it really, it pumps me up. It makes me feel good. Um, it surprises me. And, um, you know, I, it's just, it's, it's not perfect of course, but you know what, it's, it's so light years ahead of what anybody else was doing at the time. And the fact that it still strikes a chord, so to speak with audiences today is, is really a testament to the power of Beethoven. Yeah. And you mentioned, Brendan, it uses an anthem. It is actually the, literally the anthem of the EU, the, the chorale theme is the, is the, I guess you would call it multinational anthem of the European Union. So there you go. You know, good enough for the EU. Okay. Uh, Manella, Monique McKeever? Somebody I, go. <laughs> I do I do have a final thought. And that, you know, does kind of go with, uh, I can't remember which one of you said it, about, you know, the superstitions of dying after your, your ninth, you know, not, not helped by not just Mahler, but not helped by Schubert and not helped by Bruckner. Um, Dvorak? Dvorak, true. Um, I, I find it absolutely hilarious. And if we want to, you know, eventually get into another symphonic cycle of another uh, great composer out there, you know, you look at the the legacy of, of Shostakovich and the progression of his music and he gets to his ninth symphony, and you think of all these composers, Beethoven, Mahler, Bruckner, Schubert, Dvorak, and their ninth symphony is like, it, it's kind of sort of like the pinnacle of their of their work. It is, you know, something that they are almost most known, well known for. And then you listen to Shostakovich 9, and it's just this little blip on the radar it's it's you know so you you'd think that you would go into this as this giant profound work that's going to you know supersede his entire symphonic career and it's just like this meh maybe he's hope of, maybe he's hoping the angel of death wouldn't notice it's 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 it, it but it's it's like the absolute opposite of like what one would expect from a composer's ninth symphony, which then I think that you know he makes up for in his tenth. Yeah. Um, he was he was trying to avoid the curse of the ninth. Exactly, making the ninth kind of uh, picky He may <laughs> have been, um, and you know he got all the way up to his fifteenth. You know, I just I find it very humoristic that there's so many things about the ninth that were just started with Beethoven. And obviously it has to do with the epicness that he did in, in scope and form and addition of instruments and instrumental possibilities. I mean, he really set the symphonic world ablaze one last time before his death and composers, you know, spent years trying to kind of 
match it in their own in their own way. Um, and when Shostakovich gets there, it's like, yeah, I'm not about it. Okay. <laughs> kind of done with it. <laughs> anyway, all right. The ninth, who cares about the ninth? Yeah. No, it's all, yeah. Okay. Manella, final thoughts? Just that it's been a pleasure working through these with you all guys. Oh, indeed. Indeed. This is, this has been, I mean, we're, we're, we're still keeping going with the podcast, but we're done with Beethoven for now, but it's been, it's been an epic, epic nerd adventure going through all these. And thanks to everybody who stuck with it. Um, we'll be back, um, with, with different shows and uh, a variety of stuff, um, in, into the future, but it's been real fun to, to kind of take a deep dive here in Beethoven. It's not every year Beethoven 200, turns 250. In fact, it's only one year in which he turns 250, and it's this one. So anyway, uh, thanks thanks again for, for doing this, guys. And um, we'll uh, of course, we'll have you back and do it again. So uh, let's wrap this up. Matt, stay warm in Salt Lake. You know, keep the home fires burning. I'm coming back. Brandon, you too. And McKeever, you just you just keep enjoying your travels around the wherever you're going, man. Just you know, where in the world is Matt McKeever is the uh, is this is the new show? Montana's next. All right, from Wisconsin to Montana. It's warm up there. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, thanks again for joining us, everybody. If you enjoy the show, please do subscribe. Um, that helps us out, and uh, we'll see you. We'll see you at our next show. And until until next time, this has been Conductors Brew with Larry Matt. And crew, which today is Brandon Horrocks and Matt McKeever. All right. Thanks, everybody. Have a great, great rest of your week. Cheers.